0: What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Tuesday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We're a Sports Ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe O'Rico. You can find me over on Twitter at Joe O'Rico 99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. That's where you find all of our new content, whether it be podcasts, articles, polls, news and notes. Any of our baseball information slash content does get shared out there. So make sure you guys are following ethos Fantasy BB. If you're not somebody who uses social media, please do go check out sportsethos.com. That's where you'll find all of that work right from the source. You won't get the tweets that we send out throughout the day, the little bits of analysis, especially in season that our guys are doing. I do player recaps in the morning. Uh, A lot of our guys will send out little bits of information, buy lows and sell highs and stuff. So, I always recommend that you guys do have an account on Twitter and follow not just our guys here at Sports Ethos, but a lot of smart people in the fantasy world. They do post a lot of their information over on Twitter, slash X, whatever you want to call it. So I do recommend having an account over there, even if you're not somebody who's terribly active. You don't need to be. You just get to follow along and see what we are posting throughout the day. But you can still go to SportsEthos.com if that's not something you're interested in and get pretty much all of that same great work. But today we're going to continue with our reviews. We went the reverse order around the infield, so we are at first base today. And we're going to go through the top 10 first basemen following the same format we have for these previous position reviews. We'll do the top 10 today. We'll do 11 through 20 tomorrow, and then the day after, we will talk about some guys who are not top 20 names in 2023, but are still interesting One for one reason or another, whether it's a guy who's a little bit older who might have fallen off a little bit, or a young guy who didn't quite have the volume to get there, or various different reasons why they weren't top 20, but guys that I still think are interesting. That'll be what we do the next three days. Of course, that does assume that there will be no—like if Shohei Otani gets signed tomorrow— Then we'll talk about that. Probably we'll do a podcast on that or if uh, Yamamoto gets signed or if there's massive movements in free agency or trades, then we'll probably take a pause. But outside of anything big happening, that is what we're going to be doing here uh, for the majority of this week. We're going to be talking about first baseman. So why don't we get into it? Why don't we get started and talk? Matt Olson will start right at the top as we have been doing here. Matt Olson was one of the, and it's hard to really say who was the greatest value, like where you drafted them versus where they finished this year. But Matt Olson definitely has a pretty strong case for that, based on what he gave you this year: fifty-four home runs, one hundred and twenty-seven runs scored, one hundred and thirty-nine RBI, and a two eighty-three batting average. If you look at Yahoo's algorithm, how they rank players, he was number two. It was Acuna, and then it was Olson, and then it was uh, Freddie Freeman at number three. Olson was number two, and there was a lot of different reasons behind it, right? the Going to a great lineup, the fact that he got his batting average up to .283. Uh, you know, the home runs, which we already already knew he was a home run hitter, but he had been a guy who topped out at 39. He also had 36 and 34. You're probably thinking that 40 was <clears throat> about the upper limit of what you could expect from Matt Olson, But then he goes for 54. He played in 162 games. And he was, like I said, the number two overall player if you look at Yahoo's rankings. It might slightly vary based on where you're looking because right at the top there, it's fairly crowded uh, with those first few names outside of Acuna, of course. But damn, like just an incredible season for Matt Olson. Now, I don't know that he's necessarily going to be able to replicate it to the same exact degrees, right? And I think that's kind of a lot of players who have incredible seasons, it's really hard to look at them and project the exact same thing next year, especially when they do unprecedented things. So 54 home runs, was that something that we can expect going forward? Probably not. I don't think it's going to be, you know, he's not going to be somebody who just falls off power-wise, but I think you're probably looking at the 35 to 40 home run range that we've always seen from him. This was kind of one of those years, and you see it from a lot of different major leaguers, just one year in their career where they just exceed all expectations Everything goes perfect, and this was kind of what happened for Matt Olson, right? The home run total was better than ever. The run total better than ever. RBI total better than ever. 139 RBI is just absolutely absurd. 283 batting average for a guy who's a 256 career hitter, and that includes the 283 from this year. I think coming in, he was probably about a 250 career hitter. So it was kind of a perfect storm for Matt Olson. Now, going into next year, I don't know that I'm going to be expecting the same exact thing, and I think that you can probably, even if you think he's still going to be valuable – you can regress everything probably a little bit. 139 RBI, 127 runs scored. I know the offense is is incredible in Atlanta, and it'll probably be very similar next year, but this is a historic offense we saw from this team. Will it be exactly the same? Is he going to have 260 runs and RBIs combined? More? 266 runs and RBIs combined? Almost definitely not. But even if he's giving you 100 runs and 100 RBI, obviously that's still incredibly valuable. It's still probably worthy of where he is going right now. And generally speaking, and we have, every day we have more drafts to look at, there's 42 all told at this point on the NFBC. His ADP is 17.7, with a minimum pick of 7, which is really high, I think, and then a maximum of 24. I like him at the maximum range. I like him in the 20-ish kind of range, 20 to 24. Even at 17, I don't think it's terrible. Uh, I just think you have to kind of factor in that the batting average probably won't be to the same level that we saw this year. It could be. But he's a guy who's kind of fluctuated, right? We've seen him go in the 240s. We've seen him in the 260s in the short season in 2020. I know it's a short season, but it was 195, 271 after that, 240. It's bounced around a little bit. So to say that he's going to be a 280 hitter now going forward, I don't think that that makes a hell of a lot of sense. He had the highest BABIP of his career at three hundred two, just marginally the highest. He did have a three hundred BABIP in 2019. That led to a 267 batting average, and generally speaking, with Matt Olson, there's been about a 25 to 30-point difference between his batting average and his BABIP in his career. So you're probably looking at something closer to a 280 BABIP. That's generally what he's been, 279 for the career. Let's call it 280, 290. You're going to be regressing the batting average at least 10 or 20 points, at least, right? And we know Matt Olson, he could hypothetically be you know, a 230, 240 hitter. And I don't think anybody would be that surprised. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind. The floor for the batting average, it's not amazing. Stolen bases are going to be essentially a zero. He had one this year. His career high is four. The projections the steamer has out have him for one, whether you want to have him for one, zero, or two. At that point, it doesn't really make a difference. Sometimes I'll argue, oh, it's not a zero. One is essentially a zero. It's not like it's seven or eight. It's pretty much a zero in stolen bases, and like I said, all the counting stats are probably going to be regressed. If he is able to replicate this again, I would be very, very surprised if Matt Olsen gives you another top five fantasy season. I still like him a lot. I think that he is excellent. I think that if you're in the second round, you want to secure some power, you already have a speed foundation in the first round, then there's you know, a good argument to be made that Matt Olsen is a strong second round pick. But to push him up into the first round, I think, is probably asking for too much. There's a lot of steals in the first round. There's almost none in the second round. There's really not that many guys you can go at, especially based on you know, this current ADP, 15-team landscape. There's not that many guys in the second round that you can really build a stolen base foundation from. You kind of need it in the first, whether it's Bobby Witt, whether it's anybody in that first-round range, pretty much. you know, There's a couple of guys who aren't massive pluses for stolen bases, but for the most part, first round, you've got to take a stolen base guy. General rule of thumb. If you take Matt Olson in the first round, you're really handcuffing yourself in terms of how many stolen bases you can probably expect for your team. So I just think that, you know, even if we regre- regress him projection wise, and that's what Steamer has done 40 homers, 103 runs, 112 ribbies, and a 270 batting average, is what Steamer has him for. That's still great. That's still a second round player, at, you know, maybe, maybe early third round type of player. You won't be disappointed taking him in the second round, is what I'm saying. But in the first round, I think you definitely would be disappointed if you reach up for Matt Olson to that height. Number two on this list, like I hinted to, kind of gave it away, but it was Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman, I've talked about him a lot this offseason, and I don't want to make people uh, start tuning out because of my Freddie Freeman obsession, but the guy was obviously ridiculous. He was the number three overall player. He gave you 29 homers, 131 runs, 102 ribbies, a career-high 23 steals, and a 331 batting average He's still as good as he's ever been, and you could argue this was the best season of his career he's ever had. Uh, We talked about this pretty recently, but it's the highest WRC Plus we've ever seen from Freddie Freeman outside of the 2020 short season, which, of course, he was the MVP. He was absurdly good that year, and he's just gotten better every year since, it seems like. Uh, You know, you're talking 136, 158, and 163 WRC Pluses in each of the last three seasons. He's getting he's getting better with age, which is not something you'd really expect from a guy who's 34 years old, but he's getting better, and part of it is coming from the fact that he is more willing to steal than he ever has been. The first early part of his career, from age 20 through about age 26, we never saw more than six stolen bases from him. You've seen four, two, one, three, very small numbers, which you'll still take from the first base position, like I mentioned earlier. You don't want a zero, so even if you're getting like four or five, that's that's okay. One is essentially a zero, but four or five, You know, you start taking that from a couple different positions, it does add up. But then something happened to him around 2017 where you see eight steals and then ten steals and then six steals. The short year, obviously, only two steals, but only in 60 games. It still tells you that he can steal, you know, a, a couple of bags over the course of a whole season. And then in 2021, he steals eight, and then we see 13 last year and then 23 this year. I don't know how much that's going to continue necessarily, but even if you want to regress that down to ten or fifteen or twelve, whatever number you want to give him, Steamer's giving him thirteen stolen bases for next year. You're still projected to have 26 homers, 106 runs, 93 ribbies, and a 302 batting average. And I think the RBI total is probably too low. Like the Dodgers, every year they still field these incredible lineups. Freddie Freeman batting right at the top. Like he's going to drive in 100 runs, especially if Shohei Otani is there. There's no reason to think that we have to regress these numbers that much. Now, 131 runs probably is coming down. So if you want to project him for 105, 110, I wouldn't give you a hard time there. 130 is a pretty unachievable number year after year. Uh, it was the highest of his career. He had also given you, you know, over the last couple of seasons, though, 120 and 117. So maybe you don't want to regress it so far. You give him 115 or so runs, 110 to 115 range. You're still looking at a first-round player. I've taken Freddie Freeman once in my two drafts. I took him in the first round. Uh, that was, was it in Arizona? I took him. Yeah, it was Arizona. It was the Arizona draft where I took Freddie Freeman eighth overall. And I think that's where he should be going. Uh, we talked about him on the ADP value show. I did the other day as somebody who should probably be going a couple of picks higher. There's not a lot of room to push him up from first round ADP, obviously, But I think at the end of the first round, you're getting a great bargain for somebody that, regardless of how he gets there, you know you're getting a certain dollar value from him, depending on your team. Depending on your league size, it does vary if it's 10, 12, 15, or whatever. But you know you're getting that value, whether it does come from the homers or the batting average or the stolen bases, counting stats. He is a five-category player. Even if the stolen bases aren't 20-plus again— even if it's 14 stolen bases, he's easily a five-category stud and I think is very safe in the first round, considering the lineup he's in and considering the fact that he is literally the personification of a fine wine. Every year, Freddie Freeman seems to get better. Now, will he fall off a cliff eventually? Probably, but he's aging very gracefully, and there's no reason to think that 2024 is going to be any different than 2023. If we started to see the metrics really fall off this year, then that would be one thing, but they got better. Like he, Like I said, the best WRC Plus of his career – outside of the short season. There's no reason not to like Freddie Freeman, especially at the end of the first round. But let's move on. Let's talk about number three on this list, and this is where we start to go off the beaten path a little bit. It's Cody Bellinger. Cody Bellinger was the number three-ranked first baseman this season in all of fantasy baseball. Gave you a season that no one was really expecting. We were all kind of hoping for it because, you know, you see a guy at age 23 win an MVP, have ridiculous numbers, and then drastically fall off every year since. It has been an odd story arc for Cody Bellinger, to be sure. Now, in 2022, he had fantasy value. He had 19 homers. He had 14 stolen bases, and that's before he was a lot easier to steal bases. You know, you look at 14 stolen bases this year, not as impressive as what it was in 2022. we got to remember, they were a lot harder to come by. So 14 steals was, like, closer to 20, 20 20-plus. 19 homers. He had 70 runs. He had 68 RBI. It wasn't like he was some fantasy juggernaut. Don't get me wrong. But he was still a valuable, rosterable player in – Based on what I remember, like 12 teams and beyond, he had value. I don't think he was a 10-team guy necessarily. But there was still some fantasy juice there. It wasn't like he was totally a nothing burger. He goes to Chicago this past year. He hits the reset button. 26 homers, 20 stolen bases. He bats three hundred seven. Only the second time he's ever been above three hundred, And the first time was his MVP season. He had 95 runs and he had 97 RBI. And that was while missing 32 games. He plays a whole season. Easily looking at 100 runs and 100 RBI, probably 30 homers, probably 25 steals. It was a complete resurgence for Cody Bellinger. He finished as the 17th ranked player in all of fantasy. It was not something that I was expecting. I'm sure that you guys weren't expecting it either. But yet, here we are, uh, you know Cody Bellinger, he's not the same Cody Bellinger that he was with the Dodgers. It's not the same kind of production. You're not seeing that massive massive power. You're not seeing the crazy high walk rates. But he did get the strikeout rate back down to what we saw during his peak years. During the 2018, 2019, 2020 seasons, you're seeing 23, 16, and 17% strikeout rate. You're seeing over the last couple of years after that, 27 and 27 again. This year, to get it back down to 15 is a huge deal. To cut your strikeout rate by that much is absolutely ridiculous. He struck out 150 times in 2022. He struck out 87 times in 2023. So... I don't know if it was something that was between the ears with Cody Bellinger. I, I think that there's probably some element to the fact that he was in a huge media market where there was a lot of scrutiny on him, especially coming from where he was at age 23 to fall off the way he did. He was getting a lot of criticism. There's not exactly the easiest fan base to be a part of. I'm, I've never been a Dodger fan, but it seems like they can be extremely critical. You just see in the playoffs, right? Clayton Kershaw, he had a terrible, terrible outing against Arizona. And I saw some people with Dodger profile pictures and Dodgers in their thing saying, oh, Clayton Kershaw sucks. I never want to see it. It's like Clayton Kershaw is probably the best left-handed pitcher of all time. He's probably a top five or seven pitcher who's ever picked up a baseball. We don't need to disrespect him like that because, you know, he's hurt and he's not pitching well in the playoffs, whatever it is. Just to illustrate the fact that Dodger fans can be kind of sour sometimes and dealing with that for a few years while he was struggling – I think that had an effect on Cody Bellinger. It's hard to actually put that to a number value, what kind of effect it actually had. But we saw getting out of Los Angeles, going to Chicago, which is not some small media market. Playing for the Cubs, you know, it's a storied franchise. It's still a big market. But I think it gave him an opportunity to focus more on himself and less on the bullshit surrounding everything else with the team and the fact that he's struggling and blah, blah, blah. He just got back to playing baseball. He was mostly healthy, 130 games. He did miss some time, but you saw you know, three-quarters of a season from him where he was really able to bounce back. Now, I have no idea what this means going forward for Cody Bellinger. I don't know if this is going to be what we see now, if he's going to regress back, if he's going to get even closer to what we saw uh, you know, in his early seasons, if he's going to get closer to that MVP form again. I have no idea what he's going to look like. I know that I'm not crazy about the price, though, His ADP right now is 51. He has a minimum pick of 22, which I think is crazy. Like, that's kind of where he finished this year. But to draft him in the second round, I think there's a lot, a lot better options that you could go for. Now, his maximum pick is 88. So at that point, sure. I mean, if I pick 88, right, he was a top 20 player this season. There's no reason for him to fall that much. And even, honestly, at 51, it's probably where he should be going. But it just feels a little bit too high to me, especially because this is the range where I've been kind of targeting pitchers. In my early projections, in my early drafts that I've done, this fourth round kind of range is where I've been looking at a George Kirby, a Tyler Glass now, a Pablo Lopez, potentially an Aaron Nola. Not where I'm really looking to take a batter. Now, if you are, you could probably do worse than Bellinger. He's going to be first base and outfield eligible next season. He had 84 games in center field, 59 games at first. So you're very solidly... Get in both of those positions secured for next year. So, there is definitely value in having a guy you can put at either first base, you can put him in a corner infield spot, a utility spot, you can put him in the outfield. There's a lot you can do with him. But I just think, first of all, we don't even know where he's going to be playing. We don't know what the environment's going to look like. We don't know what his lineup is going to be around him. So, those right there are obvious variables. We have no clue if it's going to be a Coors type environment. Or if he's going to go to a huge ballpark, I have I literally have no clue where he's going. It there's a couple teams that seem to be making noise. If he goes to New York and goes to the Yankees, then I'm going to be very much in on him, and I think that 50-ish, 55 range is a good place for Cody Bellinger. If he goes to that short porch in New York with that left-handed swing of his, I think we're probably looking at 35 dingers, 30, 35. I think is probably what you can expect if he plays. You know, if he's healthy enough to give you 140-ish games. That's probably what you're looking at in New York. Now, there are certain places where he could go that I would not be as happy. Off the top of my head, I can't even think of the, like, one specifically. But if he goes to a lesser team and takes more money to go to a team that's maybe not quite there yet, where he just wants to have that security and sign you know, an 8-, 10-year deal or whatever it is, so he takes more money and goes to an inferior team, that's a possibility. We see free agents do that sometimes. Then I wouldn't be as interested in him, obviously. But if he goes to even a reasonable offensive environment with a decent lineup around him, I think that there's room for Cody Bellinger to repeat roughly what we saw this year and be a 50 to 60 kind of range guy. I know it's not exactly the same, but I don't think we can expect second-round value from him necessarily. But like I said, I honestly don't know. Like Maybe this was the first step on the path to redemption for Bellinger, and maybe next year— we see 38 homers and 120 runs and 118 RBI, and he steals 35 bags and he hits 320. I, like, I don't think it's likely, but i be damned if I know what, exactly what's going to happen with Bellinger based on his career path. It has been a complete roller coaster. So to say with any degree of certainty that he's likely to hit this many homers, he's likely to bat this, he's likely to have this many runs, I can't do it because, first of all, like, when he signs, we'll know a little bit better, but also even if he was just staying in Chicago there's a lot of up and down in Bellinger's career. So if you're looking for somebody where there's a reasonable floor, I don't know that he's the guy that you really want to be drafting. You could shoot for the moon, or you could maybe end up with, not a drop, but you could maybe end up with a guy who you're starting because you drafted him high up, you have that sunk cost, and he's not performing. And there's really not that much security um, with in Cody Bellinger. Because at this point right now, if you're drafting, you're drafting blind. We have no idea what it's going to look like for him in 2024. So I am tentatively kind of out on that 51 ADP. I can understand it and based on the argument that I'm talking about, I could kind of be more talked into it uh than based on other points that I'll bring up. But I think overall there are just safer players to go with in that round and I think based on the way that I've been constructing my teams even just in my head thinking about okay, I like this guy in round 1, this guy in round 2. Round four is not a place where I am generally, in 15-team drafts, taking a position player. It's where I want to start to look at some of these pitchers. That's where you start to get some undervalued pitchers. You see it every year. In that fourth round kind of range, there's some pitchers that should be going probably second or third round, and that's probably what I'm going to do for most of my leagues in 2024. If Bellinger signs with the Yankees or he signs with a good team, with a good ballpark, then I think that we're probably going to be very happy with this current ADP, but it's currently an unknown situation, so I really honestly... We're going to have to come back to it when he signs and we'll evaluate from there as of right now not the biggest fan of taking him in round four but let's move on let's talk yandy diaz yandy diaz man 95 runs 22 homers 78 ribbies and i think the big one here a 330 batting average for yandy that was what saved a couple of my teams this year him bringing up the batting average numbers now we've talked about him a little bit because he was eligible at third base this past season I don't think he will be going into next year. He played six times there. And I honestly I can't remember what Yahoo's rules are uh, for year over year carryover. Like in season, you need five appearances at a position to get eligibility. You need ten, it's either ten appearances at, or five starts at a position to gain eligibility. I'm not a hundred percent sure how that will work in the offseason. Sometimes these sites change over their rules. So I'm honestly not sure about third base, but for sure. Yandy will be first base eligible coming into next season. We talked about projections a little bit. We haven't gone crazy into them. But when the first round of steamer projections were released, we went into them on the show. We talked about some of the hitter projections. And one of the kind of big ones for me that stood out was Yandy Diaz. It's not so much the actual numbers that will blow you away. It was the WRC+, which is kind of just overall encompassing the offensive numbers that you're getting from a guy. The leaderboard, the projected leaderboard, is Jordan Alvarez at 1, Juan Soto at 2, Ronald Acuna at 3, Aaron Judge at 4, Vlad Guerrero Jr. at number 5, and then Yandy Diaz at number 6. He's projected for 21 homers, 100 runs, 72 RBI, 4 steals, a 12% walk rate, and a 295 batting average. I mean, damn, right? If he's able to do that for you again... That's pretty much what he did this year. Like, you're regressing the batting average, but everything else, that's pretty much exactly the same, right? You're getting Andy Diaz at this point, very late in drafts for a guy who finished as the 36th overall player and is also projected to be pretty much the exact same guy next season. If you just, I'm filtering here by Tampa Bay Rays, he is the sixth player on his own team by ADP. 138 is his ADP. 80 is the minimum, and 175 is the maximum. I've taken him in one of my two drafts. I believe it was round 9 of a 15-teamer. I believe it was round 9. It was either round 9 or round 10. I got him around pick 140, 150 or so. So I think it was actually after uh, ADP where I was able to snag him. It was close to the ADP anyway. But at that point, what are we doing? First base eligible on the NFBC, because he's for sure not having third base on the NFBC. But you're getting first base eligible guy who leads off for a great offense, The power, I don't think, is going to be the same numbers we saw this year. I think we're going to see probably 15 or 17 homers. I think that's where they're overshooting the projections a little bit. But even 15 or 17 homers with maybe a couple steals, I'm not going to pencil them in for sure. He's projected for four from Steamer, but he had zero this year. He had three last year. Let's say it's a couple, whatever. It's not a big deal. But you're getting a high floor for batting average and for runs scored as a leadoff hitter for a great lineup. You're getting a lot of value, and you're getting batting average late where you don't usually find batting average at that point of the draft. Certainly, if you're finding batting average at that point, it's going to be more of a Luis Ariz type or a guy who's really not giving you much else. With the Andy Diaz, you're getting decent power. You're getting good counting stats. I think the price is honestly one of the better values. We haven't talked about outside of the top 100 ADP values because those shows that I did were last week, if you guys want to check them out, I talked about eight players I really liked inside the top 100. I think they're great values. And seven players that I disliked based on their price. We haven't done outside of the top 100. Those will kind of be coming slowly over the offseason. But if you're drafting right now, I mean, even if you're drafting in a few months, I don't see Andy Diaz being a guy that just suddenly gets a bunch of helium and people start shooting him up draft boards. I think that he will be a reasonable target regardless of when or where you're drafting or what your format is. I just think that he is going to be a solid, solid asset to you regardless of what you're playing. If it's an on-base format, on-base percentage format, that's even better. 410 OBP this year, 401 last season, career OBP of 381. Like, you're getting solid, solid production there, whatever your format is. Yeah, you're not getting stolen bases, but I don't think at that point it really matters so much. You can make up for stolen bases. You should have already probably a foundation at that point, but you can also find some guys later on in your drafts that you can you know, get 10 out of here, 15 out of this guy. And I don't think it should preclude you from taking Yandy Diaz. He is one of the better values on the board right now in early drafts. Definitely somebody that you should be taking a close eye on. Keeping a close eye on, I should say. But let's move on to number five. Number five on the first base ranker this year was Pete Alonso. He gave you 92 runs. He gave you 46 homers, 118 RBI, four stolen bases. And then the ugly part was the 217 batting average. I think that's where a lot of you know even the ranking it's not terrible but he was the 38th ranked player where i think you know even with a reasonable batting average you're looking at a top 20 player the last couple years from pete have been 262 and 271 and those have been with fairly regular if not even still a little bit below average babbitt numbers at 274 and 279 this year the babbitt went down to 205 the strikeout rate went from 18 to 22 percent and there you get your 217 batting average now offensively speaking as a whole He was still pretty close to what he usually is, right? 46 homers, second highest total he's given us. 118 RBI is the third highest total we've seen from him. The 92 runs is not amazing, but the run and RBI totals, I think you're more indicative of the team that was around him that really struggled this season. You put a decent Mets team around him, and you've seen in the past, you can have 130 RBI, you can have 103 runs. We've seen those numbers from him. I'm not really particularly worried at all about Pete picking it up again next year and giving you a closer to, you know, regular Pete Alonso batting average. He's a 251 career hitter. He's projected for 250 next season. So if he gives you a 250 batting average with what he did this year, 46 homers, roughly 100 runs, 100 RBI, I mean, you're taking that easily, easily. There's no question, right? Now his current price is 27, 27.7 to be exact. A minimum pick of 17, which is the beginning of the second round, and a 15-teamer, I think that's probably too early. But the max pick is 41. If you're getting him in that range, and I'm just looking at the plot of where he's gone in a lot of these drafts, you know, there's not many times he's sneaking inside of the top 20. There's only been three draft, uh, three draft picks made of Alonzo inside the top 20. So you're not really spending a lot for him. You're getting a discount based on, you know, you should be getting a discount. It was a bad year offensively in terms of the batting average, in terms of the counting stats. But you're getting probably more of a discount than I was honestly expecting from Alonzo. at picked 27. I thought people would still be taking him like, you know, low 20s, 21, 23, 25. You can make an argument that he's going to, you know, that he's not better, but that he is probably better projection-wise than Matt Olson is. Yet Matt Olson's going about 10 picks earlier. At that point, and when you're talking early, early rounds, because 10 picks between pick 300 and 310 doesn't really matter, but between 17 and 27, you know, you can you could forego Matt Olson in the second round potentially and maybe get Pete Alonso at the beginning of the third. It depends on your draft room. It depends on the way that things are shaping out. But you're getting sim- very similar production that you can be expecting from Olsen out of Alonso, right? I mean, it's, it's very similar projections that you're going to get from both of them. And I think Alonzo is the more talented guy with the more raw power, generally speaking. I think they're they're honestly very close. You know, one guy's on the right side, one guy's on the left side. That's the biggest thing you can take away here, really. But Pete Alonzo is probably being drafted too late, honestly. that That's the big takeaway for me here. I mean, he still gave you 46 homers and 118 ribbies in a down season, right? If he's able to give you a regular season like we saw in 21 or 22, then you're probably looking at, you know, if he did... If he had the offense around him that the Mets had in 21 and 22 over this past season, you're looking at probably 100 runs, 100, I don't know, 110 runs, 130 RBIs probably, because he already had 92 and 118. I know it's kind of hard to push it up too much from there, but the team around him just sucked. The team really was terrible, and we knew it very early on. There wasn't much to play for for the Mets this season. I don't know how much that impacts you mentally, physically. I don't know. But I know that Pete Alonso is not somebody that I'm really going to let fall past me. If I'm picking at the beginning of the third round, there's no way I let Pete go past me. Again, a lot of it depends on your roster construction. Maybe you need to try and make up some steals there because you took a pitcher in round one or because you ended up taking Jordan Alvarez or something, and maybe you need stolen bases. So it doesn't fit every single roster construction. But I think Pete Alonso is going to be a very, very nice piece at the end of round two, beginning of round three. If you're talking 12-team drafts, he's almost certainly going in the third round. So I think that that's where you find a lot of value is these guys who are being pushed down because of slightly down years, but when it really wasn't their fault necessarily, I think it was just a bad season from Pete, but I don't expect that to continue going forward. Hammer him at the end of the second, beginning of the third, in my opinion. Next up here at number six is a personal favorite of mine, somebody that I have a couple of shares of this season that really paid off. took him in a draft and hold league. The one that we did actually last year when I was in Arizona and he was a great value in drafts. He was somebody that did a lot better than I was expecting, specifically in terms of stealing bases, and that's Christian Walker. Christian Walker gave you 33 homers. He gave you 86 runs, 103 RBI, 11 stolen bases, and a 258 batting average. Across the board, Christian Walker, these last couple of years, has been so impressive on both sides of the ball. Defensively, he's been really, really good. Offensively, He's gotten back to that 2019 form, and we talked about this a lot on last year's podcast with Christian Walker, that he seemed to really be doing very similar things to what we saw in 2019. 2019 was his first year, was his breakout season, not his first year, but his first full year. And he gave you 29 homers, he gave you 86 runs, he gave you 73 RBI. He was walking above a 10% clip, and he had a 260 batting average. Now, a lot of people kind of discarded that, and I was among them at first because 2019, I mean, Jeff McNeil and you had crazy guys hitting 20-plus homers and the ball was bouncing all over the place, and it was like, okay, how much can we really read into the numbers we're seeing this year? Not a hell of a lot, in all honesty, because a lot of what we saw in 2019 was bullshit. Guys that we're seeing have massive power seasons that never got back there. Jeff McNeil is a great example, and I love Jeff McNeil as a player, but just look at what he did in 2019 – and get back to me and tell me what you think about the baseball that year. So there was reason to discount a lot of these seasons that we saw where the guys were hitting massive home run totals, especially because the next couple of years for Christian Walker, 2020, you can't really count it because it's whatever, you know, it's 57 games. But 2021, he played 115 games, he had 10 home runs. And then we're thinking, okay, he was one of those guys who was one of those fraudulent 30 home run guys, 29, but you know what I mean, One of those fraudulent guys in 2019 who just really benefited from the ballpark, or excuse me, from the ball, uh, not the ballpark, from the ball bouncing all over the place, and he was not, in reality, this good. It seemed to be true. But last year, he had 36 homers, he had 94 RBI. He got the walk rate back above 10% for the first time. He also, coincidentally, got the strikeout rate below 20% for the first time in his career. 19.6, and then this year, lowers it again. I know it's very incremental, but to 19.2. Keeping that strikeout rate below twenty percent is huge for a power hitter. It will not just that, but it's one of the factors that will allow them to keep their batting average relatively high, even though they're hitting a lot of home runs. You don't see that combination terribly often. Guys who are hitting thirty plus homers and not killing you in batting average, you see it in the first couple rounds of drafts. Once you get outside of that, guys like Christian Walker were kind of anomalies. Two fifty-eight batting average doesn't sound like it's the craziest thing in the world, but when that's your worst category, you're—I mean—you're doing pretty damn okay for yourself. And honestly, 258 is above average at this point, I think. I think the average is like 240-something, 250. So if you're given a 258 batting average, there's nothing at all wrong with that, especially when you're contributing in every other category. Christian Walker was a lifesaver for a lot of people. Now, obviously, he is going to be out there as much as they can possibly put him. 157 games this year, 160 last year. He's a gold glove caliber first baseman. He's probably, arguably, he's the best first baseman in all of baseball on the defensive side. So he is not going to lack for playing time. He's going to be out there. He's on a team that just keeps getting better, producing young studs that are going to be debuting in the big leagues and still slowly coming up to the big leagues. you got Lawler, who's probably going to make more of an impact next season. I don't think Drew Jones is going to make much of an impact. I think he's still probably another year away. But Corbin Carroll, you got just a ton of young talent. Gabriel Moreno, this team is going to be very, very good. And Christian Walker right smack in the middle there. Pretty exciting to think about uh, over the next couple of years now. He's a free agent after next year. So uh, we'll see what happens. But that doesn't bother us for redraft purposes. He's going to be on the Diamondbacks next year. And he's going at a pretty reasonable price of 84.8. Call it 85 on the ADP number. 42 is his minimum pick, which I think is pushing it too much there. You're talking end of the third round. But 108 on the maximum, and that's generally where he's not going, but he's skewing closer to that maximum number. There's only one time he's gone inside the top 50. There is one, two, three, four times where he's gone between pick 50 and 75. Most of the times he's getting drafted in that 75 to 100 range with five drafts where he's gone past pick 100. That is the sweet spot. If you're getting Christian Walker anywhere in that range, but specifically past pick 100, I don't think he can really hurt you. I don't think the steals are going to be coming back the same exact number, probably 11. Maybe he's able to just you know keep taking advantage of these stolen base rules, and he's able to be kind of an efficient base dealer like he was this year, because he had 11 stolen bases. It was only 11 attempts, so he was efficient. He picked his spots. Maybe he's able to continue to do that. I think it's a possibility, but nonetheless, we're going to probably project 6 to 8. Steamer has them for 6. You're getting 30-ish home runs. You're getting the potential, and good strong likelihood of 100 RBI, 80-ish runs scored and a decent enough batting average where you don't really have to even worry about it at 250. That's the projection. 256, actually, is the projection. So I think at that price for Christian Walker, you're getting a guy who is going to be out there all the time, up-and-coming team, providing borderline five-category production, and you might be able to get him past pick 100. Really, really like what you're getting out of him. Definitely somebody that I'm going to be interested in heading into next year. And I'm hoping the price just keeps going down, right? I mean, I don't want people to keep pushing him up into the third round, because I think that's kind of crazy. I wouldn't take him in the third round, but I would damn sure take him almost every single time after pick 100. Let's talk Justin Turner. Justin Turner, we've talked about it a couple different positions now, because he was literally an everyman this year. He qualified all over the diamond, and he had a huge bounce back. So... His positional eligibility was, was interesting. It'll be interesting going into next year. He was at DH most of the time, <clears throat> 98 times at DH, but 41 times at first. He played second base 10 times and seven times at third base. Now, let me just double check and see uh, what the NFBC eligibility. I think he'll probably be just first. Yeah, he is just first, and he's going to pick 240 on average, 240.5. His minimum pick is 166. His maximum is 303. It seems pretty low for a guy who just gave you 23 homers, 96 RBI, 86 runs scored, and a 276 batting average. But there's a couple of things, right? He's a free agent, so where he'll be playing is anybody's guess. I have no idea if it's going to be a nice ballpark like Boston or if it's going to be a shittier ballpark. I have no idea at this point of his career. Now, Justin Turner also is going to be 39 years old this month. He's a few days away. Actually, his birthday is on Thursday. Uh, he'll be turning 39 years old. How much gas is left in the tank at 39 years old? I'm really not too sure. Now, he did have the benefit of not really finding his own in the big leagues. I know it doesn't sound like a benefit, but he didn't really find his own until his later 20s. And then even then, he didn't really become a full-time, every single day player, really ever, but until like 2016, that's when he played 151 games. Only time he's, actually, excuse me, there's only been two times where he's ever played over 150 games. So... There's not as much tread on the tires as a lot of people might have at age 39. Now, that being said, he's coming off of a year where he did things that I don't think are really that realistic. Is he going to be playing all over the diamond again next year and getting real uh, eligibility at first, second, and third? I don't think so. Is he going to jack 23 homers again? Is he going to drive in 96, which was a career high, 96? He was also one run off of his career high as well. So is he going to give you another career year at this stage? Probably not. But he might end up being somebody that becomes one of those boring veterans where you don't have to spend a lot on him. You're talking kind of last couple rounds of your 12-teamers, and I'm not even necessarily advocating for it because I think there are probably better options in your 12-team drafts at the end. right? There are better guys you can speculate on, whether it's a young pitcher, whoever it is. But there might be a point here where he becomes a really strong value because let's say he signs wherever. Let's say he signs as... I don't know, kind of a utility guy on a good team where you know he's going to be playing. It's probably not going to be every day, but it's like 120-some-odd games probably. If he's playing for a good team, and especially in a daily change league, there's probably value in Justin Turner at the end of the 12-teamer there. Now, in most formats, I don't think he's going to be that interesting. right? I, I think that there just comes a point where the price is so low, and you're talking about a guy who this year was a top 100 player. He's a top 70 player, actually. He ranked number 69 on Yahoo's Player Raider. I don't think he's going to do that again, but we're drafting him 200 picks later than where he finished last year. I think it's worth a flyer in a couple of leagues, specifically if you're a volume player, you know, you play in 25, 30 leagues, whatever it is, take a couple of shares of Justin Turner late, and it may end up paying off. Uh, I don't think that it's going to be another top 70 season, but even if he gives you 20 homers and 80 RBI and he bats 270, there's a hell of a lot of value in that, and that's regressing the numbers from last year as well pretty decently as you know, you're, you're taking a good number of home runs off, taking a good number of RBIs off and everything. I think there's still value in it, even if he just meets the projection from Steamer, which I think is pretty conservative, but 16 homers, 67 RBI, and a 260 average. doesn't sound very fancy, but if you're talking especially like a draft and hold format where you're looking for bodies, you're looking for any kind of fill-in players throughout the season, he might end up having some value. He's not a huge target of mine but not somebody that I am ready to just write off either. I think that there's still a chance that we see a decent season from Justin Turner next year. Of course, it'll really depend on where he goes uh, in free agency. But let's talk Luis Arise. He is next up on this list, number eight, in terms of first baseman this season. And honestly, I don't know how to feel about Luis Arise. I think that he's fine enough. He's not somebody that's ever going to be a massive target of mine. He's just somebody that I think fits specific builds where if you're really looking – to boost your batting average a bit, he does make sense. Now, his price is all over the place. Someone took him at pick 51. That, I think, is egregious. There's no reason at all to take him at pick 51. But his maximum pick was 256. That's huge. More than 200 pick gap between the minimum and maximum. That's not something you see very often, especially for somebody that does have a minimum pick that high. 164 is where he's settling in on the ADP scale the majority of the time in these drafts he's going about pick 150 or so that's generally where he has fallen in and I'll, and honestly at that point i think you'll probably take him 160, 150 160 it's specific builds right if you're taking a team if you have a team where you got batting average all throughout you got Corey seeger you got yandy diaz you got obashet you got guys all over the place that are going to be 280 290 and above I don't know that a rise really helps you that much. I think that at that point, you're probably misallocating your draft capital. But if you have a team where you have Kyle Schwarber and Pete Alonzo, and you know, you're know you trying to boost up your batting average later on, then that's where he's perfect, right? I don't think he's going to be a huge asset fantasy-wise, but in certain builds, <coughs> he really can be. And this year, I mean, to his credit, he was a huge asset. He was a top 80 player. It was all on the back of his batting average, which ended up being three fifty four. But you still got 69 RBI, you got 71 runs, 10 homers. He does a little bit of other stuff to the point where it's not solely batting average. To the point where like John Birdie's just the steals guy. Like it's not to that extent. You're still getting a little bit of production. It's not great though. It's it's really not great to the point where he should be being drafted ever in the top 100. If he has a season, and you know we saw it a couple years ago. Like what if it's 315 batting average or 290? If it's 290 with nothing else going on, then that's where there's really a problem. Now, he was 350 this year with not a lot else going on in the counting stats. You can make up for it because 350 is obviously 350, right? Especially over 600-plus plate appearances. That's going to that's gonna make a dent. But if it goes down to like 310, 320, which would still be great, that's where you're kind of losing that extra edge you'd get from Luis Arise. So as much as I like him, he's not a guy that I can just say you take on every team. If he falls and falls and falls, and you're getting him at 250, sure, I pick 250, take him on every team. Where he's going, I pick 150 to 160 range. I think he's really, really build-specific for me. Let's talk about number nine, and we got Paul Goldschmidt. We finally got to Paul Goldschmidt, the guy who was the reigning MVP, barely a top-10 player at his own position. It's sad to see, but you got to remember Paul Goldschmidt is also 36 years old now. He's going to start to regress a little bit. Now, that being said, still a top-100 season, Still very good numbers. He gave you 89 runs, 25 homers, 80 RBI, and 11 stolen bases to go along with a 268 batting average. It's still very good. The problem is you're paying King's Ransom prices last year, second, third, fourth round, depending on when you drafted and where you drafted, because you were taking the reigning National League MVP, right? He was coming off of a year where he had 35 homers. He batted 317, a 176 WRC plus. It was a seven war season. He was an absolute monster, and he finally got that MVP that eluded him in Arizona that he probably should have had in maybe 2015 or 2013, uh, even 2017. There was a lot of incredible years where he put up in Arizona, so it's good that he got an MVP. Side note, it probably also punched his ticket to Cooperstown, but I think we have to start looking at him from a fantasy point of view as not nearly the asset he once was. He is definitely, definitely starting to fall off, and... He's still going to be valuable, right? Like, I still think that the St. Louis offense is great. I've talked about this a lot. I don't think that they're going to be just some shitful offense because they're even this year when they were a bad team, they weren't. They were still very good. They still have a lot of great pieces. Goldschmidt, Arenado, you got Jordan Walker, Contreras, Nolan Gorman, Newt potentially Tyler O'Neal if they ever figure that shit out. There's a lot of talent in that lineup. So I don't think that you can just say, oh, well, the Cardinals aren't going to be good. I think they're still going to be very good, and I think Paul Goldschmidt will still have value. Now, he is the most expensive Cardinal in drafts right now. He's not going off the board until pick 75, though. Minimum pick of 40, maximum of 99, so he's always going to be a top 100 guy by the looks of it. But that price is about three or four rounds later than we saw last year, and it should be. But at that point, this this is what we've talked about a lot, and this is something that was a big takeaway of mine going down to Arizona, and specifically Dave Potts talking about this. Dave Potts with Roto-Grinders. A uh, couple times he's won the Millie Maker and DFS Baseball, one of the smarter baseball minds in the, in the world. And he talks about how the best way to construct teams a lot of the time is to take these guys that are falling in drafts that you can still, you know, you know what you're going to get, generally speaking, even if it's not going to be to the same extent. Like Goldschmidt, I don't know right now if you can necessarily, like, Pencil him in for certain numbers because he might regress a little bit more. But you generally know you're getting 20-plus homers. You're getting roughly 10 stolen bases. You're getting like a 270 batting average. Good counting stats in that lineup. You know exactly what you're getting, and you're getting him cheaper than you have been in years past. It's not a straight rule of thumb where this all every single time is going to work out because there are guys who are pushed down boards occasionally, and there's good reason for it. And Paul Goldschmidt, absolutely, don't get me wrong, should be pushed down the board. But it also becomes a point where it's like, okay, pick 75. Is there that much going on in that range where I can really justify passing up Goldschmidt over and over if I need a first baseman? I don't know. He's still a five-category guy, as much as some people might not like to hear it. You're getting 10 stolen bases from your first baseman. That's more than plus. That is you know, absolute gravy. You're getting 25 homers. You're getting 89 runs, 80 RBI. It's just because we drafted him expecting first-round value again this year, which... Maybe we shouldn't have done. Maybe we should have, because I think, honestly, the way his career had gone, there was no real way to project that he was going to fall off coming into this season. And the fall-off wasn't even that bad. It wasn't like he hit 17 home runs and he batted 242. It was still a very, very good season from Goldsmith. So you take that knowledge and you say, okay, I know it's not going to be to the same level that it's always been with Paul, but he's still going to be giving me you know, top 100 value And it's a much, much regressed price than what I've been paying the last several years for Goldschmidt. You might be a huge Goldschmidt fan, an Arizona guy, a St. Louis guy, and you want to draft him every year. This is a good year to draft him because the price is cheaper than we've seen it ever. I don't know the last time you are getting Paul Goldschmidt in the 70s. It was probably like 2012, like if even. I don't even know. But he has not ever been somebody in the time that I've been playing fantasy baseball that you could ever get this cheap, and there is an appeal to that. I don't know if he's going to continue to fall off next year. But I think this is kind of a plateau he'll hit for the next couple of years. He won't be that superstar. He won't be hitting 35 homers and you know, hitting 320 again, probably, although we never know. But he'll probably still be somebody that is very valuable from a fantasy point of view. He's still somebody that, you know, he's giving you five categories, even if you want to call it four-category production, from the first base slot. That's not something you're getting from everybody. In fact, there's not a lot of first basemen at all that you're projecting any stolen bases from. Even this year, he was what was he one two three four five six seventh on the first in terms of first baseman and stolen bases this year. Freeman, Bellinger, Nolan Jones, Spencer Steer, Luke Rayleigh, Owen Miller, and then Paul Goldschmidt. Rayleigh, not really somebody that you could trust so much in your shallow leagues. Owen Miller, obviously not much of a fancy asset at all. You're talking about the guys who you're actually drafting to play first base for you. There's Freeman, there's Bellinger, there's Nolan Jones, there's Steer, and then there was Goldschmidt. There's not a lot of stolen bases to go around at the position, and it should be valued, especially at that point in the draft. You're looking to make up some steals here and there. That's where you can make it up with a guy like Goldschmidt, who people will be pushing down because he's an old man. The Cardinals sucked last year. He sucks. He's fallen off a cliff, whatever. Take him in the 80s. Take him in the 70s. I think that's honestly a really good price for somebody that will probably still give you... Roughly what he did this year. The projections seem to think he'll do exactly the same thing again. Pretty much exactly the same thing. Take a chance on that 40 picks later than you would have had to last year. All right, let's talk about number 10, and then I will send you guys on your way for today. That's Bryce Harper. I know we're getting some real chalky names here at the end, talking about some superstars at the end of the top 10 here. Now, Bryce Harper's problem was, A, he missed games, and, B, when he came back, the power wasn't really fully there the way we were expecting it to be. It did come around, But in 126 games, he only had 21 home runs, which is not very Bryce Harper-esque. But he still had 84 runs scored. He had 72 RBIs. He had 11 stolen bases. And he batted 293. So he's still an overall package, giving you, again, five-category production at a first base. You're not seeing that from a lot of players. Now, he is just first base. He's not going to be outfield-eligible Bryce Harper wherever you're playing. I know he did have that on Yahoo last year. This year, he was a DH 89 times. He played at first base 36 times. So that is what he will be, a first base only. It's kind of odd when players later in their careers transition. Chris Bryant is the one that always messes me up when he was—you know goes from third base eligible to first base and then he's outfield. It always messed me up there. You're seeing kind of similar thing here with Bryce Harper. Now he's a first base only player. I don't think that should preclude you from wanting to draft him at all, though. Bryce Harper is still one of the absolute best players in all of baseball. Now, the thing that I don't particularly love is the price. It's a little bit expensive for Bryce Harper. He's going at the end of the first round. 14.98 is the ADP, literally averaging right there at the end of the first round with a minimum pick of nine, maximum of 24. I don't love it at that point just because I want to have more of an anchor of stolen bases in the first round. Now, at the end of the first round, it doesn't matter as much, but I'd probably rather take somebody where I know I'm getting something. And at that point, you know, you, there's not even a guarantee he's going to be there. But, like, I'd take Jose Ramirez probably over Bryce Harper. They're ADPs are within one of each other. And then at that point, I guess the steals do dry up a little bit. You got Shohei going a couple picks later, 15.7 on average. You're getting steals out of Shohei. Now, you're getting some steals out of Bryce Harper. It's just not what I really necessarily want in the first round. It's not terrible. Don't get me wrong. But if the power doesn't come back to the way that we're expecting, right? Like, let's say he hits another you know, – let's say he plays the whole year next year and it's 25 home runs. Then you're not really getting a lot of bang for your buck just from that. And that's where a lot of it comes from from Bryce Harper. You know, you you come to expect 35 to 40 home runs from him over his career. If he's now a 25 homer guy, he has to really make up for that in other categories in order to justify a first round price. Now the batting average has gone up over the years, but it's not gone up to the point where it's solely carrying you, right? 2.93 this year, 2.86 last year. Uh 309 the year before it's very good batting averages but it's not like a 320 to 330 kind of range like he could very realistically hit the projection here which is 283 which would be good but he's not bringing you up a hell of a lot at that point especially if the home runs don't come back if the power is not there this season then that price is going to look pretty bad in the first round if the stolen bases go down because he's not been a guy that you can consistently rely on for double digit steals in his career we have seen him do it multiple times We've also seen four stolen bases from him. We've seen six. We've seen two. We've seen, you know, 21, you know, t- on the other side of that example. You know, we have seen him go for massive stolen base numbers. But I think the fact that it's always kind of bouncing around leads me to believe that you can't really project that. You, I mean, we're going to have to project something. But I think it could easily be, just as easily be six as it could be 18 stolen bases. So, well, he seems like a good, solid floor play at the end of the first round. I don't know that he necessarily is. If if you knew he's playing a full season, if you knew the power is going to be there the way it was when he was younger, then sure, he's a first round pick. But right now, I think you know. And like I said, don't let it preclude you from drafting him. I think that you're probably better off if he is a turn pick. If you're taking the beginning of the second, or, or even end of the first, if you're drafting 15 or 14. But you got to pair it with, I think, a little more uh, security in terms of your floor. Because Bryce Harper a lot of injury problems over his career. The power is obviously something that I'm going to be concerned about, even though it did come back to some extent. But if he doesn't hit that next level again, then you're you're not getting a lot of bang out of your first-round buck at that point. And I don't really know how to feel in terms of the power. Like, it did seem to get better over the course of the season. He seemed, the more he played the more that the power was coming back, and you saw it by month. In August, he hit 10 home runs. That was the big one, but we also saw zero home runs in June. We saw three in May. We saw two in July. We saw, what was it, in, uh, it was only six in September. And I know six isn't bad. You average that over the course of a whole season, but it's just fluctuated quite a bit to the point, and a lot of his numbers have to the point where I don't know what to expect from Bryce Harper. Is he going to be 35 home runs? Is he going to be 22 home runs? I don't know. I don't think it'll be 22, but I wouldn't be shocked by it either. I think there is a lot of risk there if you're taking him with your first-round pick, especially if you're pushing him up, right? If you're taking him, if you're pushing him up to the minimum pick, which is nine, I think at that point you're really making a mistake. And I don't think a lot of people are doing it, if I'm just looking at where he is broken down by his ADP. He's only gone in the top ten three times. Excuse me. He's only gone in the top ten, technically, I mean, he went at ten exactly twice, But he only went inside that one time at pick nine. Most of the time, you're seeing Bryce Harper in the second round, which is where he should be going, I think. I think at that point, it makes it a lot easier to construct your team with a high floor. And I think in those first couple rounds, I've talked about this a lot. Construct your team from a floor perspective. Go for the guys where you know. know, I've used this expression a lot, but write it down in pen, essentially, before the year. You know what the guy's going to give you. With Bryce Harper... I don't know exactly what he's going to give me. And even you know a lot of players, you don't know what they're going to give you. But try and aim for that security in those first couple of rounds where you generally have a really good idea of what the production is going to be. Not to say that Bryce Harper is going to be bad first-round pick. He could be a great first-round pick. But there is a lot of worry there as well, where there are certain guys at the end there where I just don't really have that worry as much. Jose Ramirez, namely, you know, at a weaker position in third base where you're getting more stolen bases, you have more of a consistent sample size. Every year, Ramirez is pretty much the same guy. You're not dealing with a major injury either. Like, if that's the option, I'm taking Ramirez there every single time. Not that shit on Harper. I love him. But I don't know that he really belongs in the inside part of the first round. If he's end of the first, beginning of second kind of range, fine. Don't push him up inside the top ten. There's there's no need to take Bryce Harper in the top ten. But that'll do it for us. Let me know what you guys think over on Twitter, of course, at orico 99 at Ethos Fantasy BB as well, and, of course, SportsEthos.com. A lot of exciting things happening at the site. We have a new contributor, Ben Tidd. We introduced him yesterday on the show and on Twitter. Go give him a follow at BreakingBen underscore T. We're also in the process of reviving uh, the It's Gone podcast. Britton Allen used to do that show for us here. He left for Greener Pastures at the Palazzo podcast the co-host with Michael Govier. So that show's been orphaned, and we actually, it looks like, are going to be having a couple of people fill in and take up that show. It'll be either a weekly or twice-weekly pod. We'll have more details uh, as they emerge over the next week or two. But a lot of exciting things on the horizon at Sports Ethos. If you're interested in coming aboard the team, we have a lot of different roles across various different sports, writers, editors, uh, audio, video, content producers. A lot of different roles are available. So please do reach out to me. Like I said before, I'll list it one more time. At JoeOrico99, if you have any questions, whatever, uh, please do tweet me or DM me, and we will make sure uh, we get you talking with the right people. But that'll do it for me. We'll talk 11 to 20 range of first baseman tomorrow. Of course, barring an Otani signing or something. But until then, guys... Take care, have a great night, and cheers. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks?